welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. You might have seen me around a bit before. Two years ago, I did a practicum here, and then last summer, I was on staff working with our home groups, and now, most recently, I'm on an internship until the end of December as part of the last year of my undergrad degree at Ambrose University. So far, during my internship this year, I've had the chance to be involved in planning our annual volunteer dinner, working with our prayer team and our connection team, and most recently, curating a contemplative event all about the mystics, and all of it has been so much fun. This community has been so good to me. I have learned so much over the past two years, and so it is such a privilege to get to be part of the teaching team for the new series we're jumping into today. We're calling this series Making Room, because over the next four weeks, we'll be looking at the theme of hospitality. We're going to be using the Gospel of Luke as our framework, because out of all the writers who looked at Jesus' life and recorded pieces of it, Luke in particular has this strong preoccupation with Jesus when he is seated with others around a table. Luke draws us into all of these different stories about Jesus making room, whether that's sharing a meal with Pharisees, sitting down for dinner with tax collectors, eating on a hillside with a crowd of 5,000, having a conversation with two women in their home, or just partaking in the Passover meal with friends. No type of character seems to be excluded from the chance to sit down for dinner with Jesus. And Luke wants us to notice that. Jesus' hospitality is so prominent in the book of Luke that it sheds light on everything else Jesus says. Now, that might sound a bit dramatic, but I really am convinced that hospitality is not just an important Christian virtue. It's also one of the most prominent and transformative themes in Jesus' life. So, for the next four weeks, we as a community want to think about what making room looks like. Not just at the dinner table, though that might be one important way we embody hospitality, but in all of the places and spaces we take up. In our home, our workplaces, our libraries and coffee shops and community centers, how can this sacred practice of hospitality Invite us to welcome others, to attend to the needs of others, to advocate for others, and even be welcomed and attended to and advocated for ourselves. Ethicist Philip Halley spent most of his career studying the human capacity for both good and evil. And he pointed out this. He said that the opposite of cruelty is not just the absence of cruelty or freedom from cruel relationships. The opposite of cruelty is hospitality. And hospitality extends so much farther than just the meals we eat together. Hospitality has the ability to make strangers friends to begin the repair of broken relationships, enable us to be attuned to the pain and the pleasure and the beauty all around us. So, to start off our exploration of hospitality, we'll be jumping into a story in Luke chapter 19. But before we read that, will you take a moment to pray with me? Let's pray. God of welcome, you have shown us what it means to make room for the people in our lives to welcome without restraint, to attend to the needs of another, to advocate for those who are vulnerable. So God, would you begin to expand our imagination of what hospitality looks like, so that it would extend beyond a table or a meal, even beyond our homes. Would you teach us to expand our welcome to our family, and then to our friends, 
to our neighbors and then to the strangers who pass us by until every moment that we share with another is saturated in your welcoming love. Give us attentive ears to hear and open hearts to receive the ways that you, God, are calling us to a more generous path. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Luke chapter 19 starts off like this. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Now, before we go any further, let's get ourselves situated in the story here. Jesus has been on a journey for quite some time now, through most of the book of Luke this far. Back in Luke chapter 13, we got a bit more detail about where exactly it was Jesus was going. Luke 13:22 tells us that Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying his way toward Jerusalem. And this particular story in Luke 19 really is the climax of this travel narrative. Themes that Luke has built on, motifs he has developed through most of the gospel will converge and begin to interact in this story, which is one of the last stories we read before Jesus enters Jerusalem. Okay, let's keep reading. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Let's pause again there. There are a few important details we need to notice about this new character, Zacchaeus. First, he's a chief tax collector. And tax collectors were not the most popular kids on the block, to say the least. They were responsible for collecting taxes, yes, but they often used this power to extort the citizens in their community for extra money. Because of this, they unsurprisingly became largely despised, not just because of their greed, but also because they were seen as traitors, Jewish men who had turned on their community of faith to work for the Roman Empire. Zacchaeus was exactly that, a Jewish tax collector. So, that, so we can expect his community would be deeply suspicious of him. And this unpopularity intensifies because Zacchaeus is not just a regular old tax collector, he is described as a chief, a chief tax collector. So he has managerial status. He's essentially the Michael Scott of tax collectors. And no one likes to pay taxes, especially not to a guy like Michael Scott, at least not when the bill shows up. But part of the unique distrust of tax collectors in Rome is that they have a reputation for being deeply dishonest. But aside from their bad reputation among their Jewish neighbors, tax collectors also have a particular reputation in the book of Luke. Since the beginning of this book, tax collectors have been following Jesus, listening to Jesus, and eating with Jesus. At the beginning of Luke, Jesus calls Levi, a tax collector, to be one of his disciples, one of his closest friends. This is not the kind of decision that gains Jesus' popularity. He's regularly ridiculed by the religious authorities as being the guy who eats with tax collectors and sinners. The point is, Zacchaeus' occupation is not good for his public approval rating. But if we have been tracking with Jesus this far, we might be wondering if his job will actually be a benefit if he gets the chance to meet Jesus. But there's another detail we have to talk about. Zacchaeus is also very wealthy. And this might mean he lacked integrity with his collection of taxes, but regardless, Jesus has just said some pretty sharp things to people who hold on to their wealth. Just a chapter ago, in Luke 18, Jesus encounters another wealthy man, a rich young ruler who asks Jesus what he can do to inherit eternal life. The young ruler has kept all of the commandments, he's lived his life well, but Jesus tells him there's one more thing he should do. He should sell everything he owns, and he should give all of his wealth to the poor. And the young man just can't bring himself to do that. He's got a lot of money, this would be pretty devastating to him, Instead, so instead of following Jesus, he just kind of walks away. 
And Jesus sees that and he says, look, getting into the kingdom of God is not easy when you hold on so tightly to wealth. In fact, Jesus says it's easier for a camel to find his way through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So, the crowd following Jesus knows two things before Jesus meets Zacchaeus. First, that Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But second, that being wealthy has not been an indicator of Jesus' favor thus far. In fact, it might even hurt your chances of picking up what Jesus was putting down. So, what is going to happen to Zacchaeus? How is Jesus going to respond to this man who seems to be both the epitome of those radically welcomed by Jesus and the embodiment of those who have a really hard time following Jesus to begin with? Imagine you're Zacchaeus for just a moment. Surely, you would be curious about this man traveling through your city. You've heard that people like you, tax collectors, those who have been ostracized from their own social circles, that Jesus welcomes people like you, eats with them, becomes their friend. But maybe you've also heard rumors of what Jesus had to say to that rich young ruler just a few days ago, that it's humanly impossible for rich men to enter the kingdom of God, and that makes you nervous. You are intrigued by the things you've heard Jesus say, words of reconciliation and redemption and welcome, but you're scared too. What is Jesus going to think of a man like you? Tax collecting, wealth accumulating, power holding you. Have you ever had that feeling where there's an uh, author or maybe an actor that you really love and you would really love the chance to get to meet them in person because you know the two of you would just hit it off and instantly become best friends, but you also know that they could end up being the worst person in the world, and so meeting them would just be terrible. I kind of think that's what's going through Zacchaeus' mind right now. He desperately wants to meet Jesus, but sometimes it's easier to admire someone from a distance, isn't it? Well, we don't know exactly why, but something in Zacchaeus longs to know who Jesus is and what he might have to say in Jericho. The text tells us Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was. But, because he was short, he couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. So much happens in these four short sentences. Seconds earlier, Zacchaeus was just climbing up a tree, trying to get a glimpse of Jesus among the crowd, just trying to see him, catch a bit of what he was saying, maybe learn something about who Jesus was, and suddenly, without Zacchaeus even realizing it, Jesus has begun to move directly towards him too. By the time Zacchaeus gets to the top of the tree and gets a chance to scan the crowd for Jesus again, Jesus is already right below him calling his name. Zacchaeus, he says, come down right now. I want to visit you in your home. And we see what a big deal this is by the way Zacchaeus reacts. The text tells us that he came down at once and welcomed Jesus gladly. There's no fear or anxiety in Zacchaeus' response. There's not even a hesitation. Zacchaeus is so intent on seeking Jesus that he doesn't stop to consider that Jesus is seeking him out as well. Zacchaeus' earnest search for Jesus isn't met with a challenge, but rather Jesus is already weaving his way through the crowd weaving his way around the obstacles Zacchaeus couldn't see over to tell Zacchaeus that he'd like to have dinner with him. Maybe you've felt like it's difficult to notice God's presence lately, to know if God is even present in your life at all. 
And maybe you've been wondering what you need to do to fix that. Am I too busy? Am I too distracted? Have I done something or said something? Maybe I've failed to do something I should have done. If there's this wall between me and God right now, what do I need to do to bring it down? Because how often have we assumed that it is our duty alone to search for God? To seek God out, to try and decipher God's will, to look for God somewhere in the world that surrounds us. And all of these things are good, but could it be that we forget how reciprocal that seeking is? Please hear me, there's so much good and so much beauty in the search for God, in projecting our words and prayers towards God and listen, listening intently for a response and trying to see God's goodness in the world around us. But if you have ever felt like the responsibility is on you to find your way through this messy world, through your complicated life and towards the divine, please know that there is so much more to that story. Because no matter how hard you try, your experience of God is always initiated by God. For all of your searching and seeking and struggling, God is searching and seeking and struggling towards you. Zacchaeus desperately wants to know who Jesus is and Jesus is making his way towards Zacchaeus, calling him by name all the while. But just as Zacchaeus hears Jesus and rushes to be near him, it's not all sunshine and daisies because there is real opposition from the crowd. The crowd begins to grumble and Luke tells us, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now, let's remember what we learned earlier and give this grumpy crowd some grace here. I mean, yes, they probably should know better now, but better by now. We are in Luke chapter 19, after all, and we've seen Jesus eat with all manner of people during his travels. But also, Jesus hasn't eaten dinner with anyone quite like Zacchaeus. Because Zacchaeus really is this convergence of two stereotypes we've encountered a lot in Luke, the tax collector and the wealthy man. Before he encounters Zacchaeus, Jesus has been meeting people and telling stories about people who have been the outcasts of society. The story immediately preceding this one tells of Jesus meeting a blind man on the side of the road and healing him. Before that, Jesus welcomes children into his arms, he heals men with leprosy, and he tells numerous parables about widows, lost sheep, misplaced coins, bad bosses, and tax collectors. The section of Luke we're in right now is actually often referred to as the Gospel of the Outcasts, named after this cast of unlikely characters who inhabit it. But Zacchaeus is unlikely in a completely different way. He has actively and intentionally exploited the people of his own city, of his own religion for his own financial gain, not just as an ordinary tax collector, but as a chief tax collector, one who is calling the shots in this system of exploitation. The people in the crowd don't see someone deserving of grace or forgiveness or even a second chance. They see someone who has used the system of power to hurt them, to deny their families what they need. So if you're a person in the crowd right now, you would be understandably miffed that Zacchaeus gets to host Jesus, right? No one seems to deserve it less. But also, wouldn't you just be a tiny bit annoyed with Jesus himself? I mean, you've been following Jesus for a while now, and he's been talking a big game about these things. He's said, woe to those who are rich. He's said the rich can't enter the kingdom of God. He's said you can't serve both God and money. And now, 
Now he decides to sit down for dinner with one of the wealthiest men in Jericho. It's a bit of a shock, right? Because Luke has set us up to expect Jesus to turn Zacchaeus away, to scold him, to rebuke him, maybe to not even engage with him at all. But in this story, at the climax of Jesus' travel narrative, Luke makes this surprising reversal of all the stereotypes he has set us up to fall for. But before Jesus can reply to the crowd's mutterings, Zacchaeus himself interjects. He stands up and he says to Jesus, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. And Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So what on earth do we make of Zacchaeus' grand declaration here? It's such an interesting response. He doesn't really apologize. There's no clear reference to his relationship with Jesus. In fact, it doesn't really seem to be about Jesus at all. It's about Zacchaeus realizing that something in him isn't quite right, that something needs a repair, something needs a remedy. And we don't really get to see exactly what pushes Zacchaeus towards this transformational moment. Is it really just the crowd's grumbling? Something tells me it was more, maybe words exchanged between him and Jesus that went unheard. And that might make, that might make sense when you think about your own life. It seems like, for me anyways, some of the most transformative moments in our lives don't always coincide with the most dramatic moments. Often, transformation looks like the gradual growth that happens within us. The unseen shifts in the way we think, the maturity that we sometimes slowly struggle towards. Transformation happens in times of difficulty and in times of joy, in ordinary moments shared between friends that get us to move, friends that encourage us to make that big decision we've been putting off, friends who push us towards change. And as Zacchaeus responds in this surprising way, Jesus has something unexpected of his own to add to the conversation. When he hears Zacchaeus promise to give up half of his wealth to pay back what he has stolen fourfold, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. And we can see the ways in which this story parallels the scatteredness in our world. Because like so many, Zacchaeus has made the choice to hedge his bets on power, to exploit those with less, to take from those in his own community. But the people in his community also chose to separate from Zacchaeus in response. This mutual betrayal of a relationship that was supposed to look like family, it cost all parties involved. It denied the community financial security and safety, and it denied Zacchaeus the kind of community that every human needs. The vision of a just and equitable world that Zacchaeus would have grown up knowing about, hearing about, reading about in the Torah, this kind of world was not possible so long as Zacchaeus was separated from his community. And isn't that so symptomatic of what we do to each other all the time? We find reasons, often good and valid reasons, to turn each other away. We stop texting that friend back when they hurt us instead of doing the slow and hard work of healthy conflict. We collectively, maybe subtly, reject someone from our community when their experiences just don't make sense to us. 
And when someone hurts us, when someone chooses to leave, we default to the decision to never welcome them back. Now, don't get me wrong here, boundaries are so important. Harm caused to people and to communities should never be taken lightly, so know that I am not promoting disregard for those who have been hurt and I'm not letting perpetrators of harm off the hook here. But what we see in Zacchaeus is a genuine concern that he repair the harm he caused. Not just with his sentiment, but with his bank account. Biblical scholar Jay Nolan says that repentance must be more than a fleeting gust of emotional melodrama. It has implications for one's long-range future, and it should show up in the bank balance. It's important to remember that Jesus comes from a rabbinical tradition that thinks really seriously about what repentance looks like on the ground. The rabbinical discussion around repentance held that a truly repentant person did more than just express or even feel regret. They seized the behavior causing harm, and they made restitution for the harm that was caused. So Jesus says to the crowd, I know this guy hurt you. Yeah, Zacchaeus has caused damage. Yes, Zacchaeus embodies everything you are suspicious of and for good reason. But hear me here, Jesus says, this man is your family. He's your brother. And he deserves the chance to make it right. I mean, this is a bit of a hard truth to swallow, isn't it? And even harder, Zacchaeus must make the decision to trust what Jesus says, to take it as his own truth. And further still, Zacchaeus has to trust that the community, his community, will welcome him back home, just like Jesus insists they should. And I really think that Jesus' words have something to say to us, too. We, as a church, as a community, we talk a lot about grace, about the importance of having grace for each other, about the lengths that grace will go, and that means having grace for each other in our worst moments as well as in our best. To be a community of grace, we have to be a community that people can return to. A community where people can experience growing pains and the consequences of their actions and disorientation and where they can work towards reconciliation and where they can find welcome. Jesus' welcome of Zacchaeus exemplifies divine initiative that seeks us out, that moves towards us, and that welcomes us home. The welcome that Jesus offers Zacchaeus and the welcome that the divine is continually and constantly offering us is an invitation to come back to who we really are. The hospitality that Zacchaeus experienced working as a tax collector for the Roman Empire was one that said, you're welcome here because of what you can contribute, because of what you earn. And then Jesus welcomes Zacchaeus back into a community that is called to welcome him, not because of what he contributes, but because of who he is. Now, maybe you haven't had an encounter with the divine while sitting in a tree, but maybe you've felt safe in a space where you can be exactly who you are without any fear. Maybe you've had a close friend see you, really see you for exactly who you are, and see the good in you, even when you've really messed up. Or maybe you've had a family member who saw you going down a path that led to hurt and pain and they put their arm around you and they reminded you of where you really belong. Here's the thing, all hospitality comes to us at God's invitation. 
And it's the initiation of divine welcome that allows us to turn around and to offer that same welcome to the people around us. When you invite someone into your home so that they can share a meal with you and talk about what's been on their mind lately, you are initiating the welcome of God. When you text that friend about that thing they've been wondering about, the thing they're excited about, when you encourage them to just go for it, you are initiating the welcome of God. When you encourage your partner after a long day at work, when you tell your kids how loved they are, when you remind yourself of your own importance, you are initiating the welcome of God. Zacchaeus' transformation from someone who holds on tightly to power and wealth to someone who gives it away freely happens in, in, happens in light of Jesus' recognition of his potential, the potential to be a human filled with generosity and grounded in community. So may you feel the welcome of God this week. May you know that you are completely known and loved by the divine and that the hospitality that God offers you was always meant to draw you back home. Will you pray with me? God of invitation, it is through your hospitable love that we find rest. When we are weary, when we are carrying a heavy load, when we don't know which way to turn, your love embraces us and your love shows us the way home. God, may we lean into that embrace this week. And as we receive your welcome into safety, into love, into belonging, may we extend that welcome to others. In the words we speak, in the time we spend, in the people and the causes we advocate for, may hospitality and love mark our lives with your grace. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.